Turn with me to Psalm chapter 16. So at least tonight you get a verse-by-verse study. And uh, we're continuing on in this um, selection from the Psalm series. We covered uh, Psalm 10 last week. And so we're going to skip forward up to Psalm chapter 16. I don't know the exact number we're going to do yet. I'll know as we go. All right, Lord... Here's another one. I, I know I'm going to do the 23rd Psalm, and there's certain Psalms I know I'm going to do, but uh, this 16th Psalm is what we're going to look at tonight. Uh, pick it up with me if you have your Bibles with you in verse 1. Uh, some of your Bibles may have a title. Uh, mine is titled, The Hope of the Faithful and the Messiah's Victory, a Miktam of David. And we'll read verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, You are my Lord, my goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor will I take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, or Hades, or hell, all same word, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for just bringing us here, and Lord, you have kept us for another day. You've given us another day by your grace. You've brought us to the middle of this week. We didn't keep ourselves. Lord, you kept us as we'll even see in this text tonight. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. Jesus, we just celebrated your resurrection on Sunday. We thank you that you are still risen. And Lord, you are looking down even at this service. And Lord, we're part of your resurrection. And Lord, we pray that the resurrection life of Jesus will be breathed upon this service, upon the teaching, upon your word. I pray for your anointing. pray for those that are watching online. You'd minister to them as well as those in this room and out of the children's and high school and middle school. Lord, you just minister to each and every person what we need. And Lord, we also would have soft and tender hearts to grow in your grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So what a beautiful and encouraging passage. That's said of a lot of passages, I understand that. But uh, when you read these verses, you might think, is this about David? So we see right here, it says, the miktam of David. Is this about us? Is it about the Messiah? Is this from David's perspective? Is this from the Messiah's perspective? Is this practical instruction? Or is this prophecy? Yes. You guys know the answer to these. Yes. It's all of those things and more. But here in chapter 16, we have a unique title or a heading for this psalm. And again, my Bible 
uh, has it. Some, some Bibles don't have the headings, but we know it's attributed to David, but it references this miktam, miktam of David. And this word is found nowhere else in the Bible except for in the Psalms. There's no other mention of it anywhere in Scripture, no other place in the law, in the prophets, in the New Testament, only found in the Psalms. And it's only found in the Psalms six times, this word miktam. The, the heading is in the original manuscripts as well. This is the first place we see it in the Psalms, and we don't see it again until chapter 56, and chapter 56 through 60 are all referred to as miktams, all specifically miktams of David. It's believed to be a word of Hebrew origin, but the fact that it's found nowhere else in Scripture has rendered the precise meaning as inconclusive. And when you get to heaven, you can find out for sure what it means. Lord, what does miktam mean exactly? Martin Luther translated the word as golden jewel. A miktam, a golden jewel. It's also been translated as profound, precious, or one with the gift of writing. And certainly David had the gift of writing as well as he had the gift of writing songs and musical uh, lyrics. But like many scriptural words, it may well include all of those descriptions in a single word. You could say, is this psalm a golden jewel? Yes. Is this psalm profound? Yes. Is it precious? Yes. Is it written by someone who was gifted with words? Yes. So it certainly would apply to all of these things. But without question, Psalm 16 is indeed a golden jewel, and uh, it offers us profound direction, wisdom, testifying, encouragement, and prophecy in 11 short verses. All of that is found in these 11 verses. And if you're taking notes, you see the title this morning, Our Portion and Our Deliverer. Now, the hours for believers... If you don't know the Lord, he's not your portion. He can be your deliverer, but he's not unless you know him personally. Of course, David did know the Lord. And so this, uh, this first thing we'll look at in verse 1, I mentioned the word direction. And direction we see in verse 1. It starts, verse 1 is a prayer. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. It's the only prayer of these 11 verses. Verse 1 is the only prayer, but it starts with this prayer, and it's an all-encompassing prayer that covers a lifetime. Think about your entire life. Preserve me, O God. It can cover your entire life. It covers a broad range of seasons of your life, trials in your life, challenges in your life, it can cover Wednesday, it can cover Thursday, it can cover difficult times, good times, bad times. It's a prayer that we should pray many times, could pray many times, and probably have prayed many times. Lord, keep me. Every single Sunday, I'm always praying uh, that blessing in Numbers chapter 24. Lord, bless you and what? Keep you. Because you can't really keep yourself. You can't ensure that a car doesn't hit you on the interstate. You're asking the Lord to keep you. Because you can't really keep anything. 
But it means, as we look at this uh, word, when he says, to preserve me, this word preserve, it means to keep, or to guard, or to observe, or to watch over. That word preserve, that the Lord is watching over, that he's keeping us. And don't you want the Lord to guard you, to watch over you, today, tomorrow, through your whole life? Now, of course, only the true and living God can guard us and keep us. And that's exactly who David is praying to. He's praying to the true and living God. Not praying to an idol, not praying to stone. We talked on Resurrection Sunday, this past Sunday, about the fact that no matter what, Jesus already is the Savior. He is the King. He is the Good Shepherd. He is every title that you've ever seen in the Bible. He already is those things. He's the I Am, right? Before anything was, He is. But as in respect to Jesus being the Savior, which He is, I close with the question, is he your Savior? We had a couple of people raise their hand and say, no, he's not my Savior, but I want him to be my Savior. And you look at the rest of verse 1, and it says, not only preserve me, O God, there's the prayer, preserve me, O God, but in David's prayer, he reminds the Lord, for I've put my trust in you. I've put my trust in you. Many people have a concept of God. They know the name of God. They use his name to make a point sometimes. Even atheists will use the name of God to make a point. I'm not even talking about when they use his name as a swear word. That happens too. And many a person will even throw up a prayer to God. Lord, pray, help Ukraine. That has no relationship with God. Far fewer have actually put their trust in God, their life in God, their entire being into the hands of God. For years, till the day I was saved in 1995, I already believed that God existed. I believed there was a God. I even believed God created the earth. I did not believe, I've never believed in evolution. Never even seemed plausible to me at all. The more I study it, the more implausible it is, but I don't have time to go into that. But I believed in God, but not until the day I was saved did I put my trust in God. My trust, we, we, say, that, we say this phrase, I'm trusting in Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. I put my trust in Christ. Brother and sister, if your trust, which is your faith, is in God, here's good news. As David is praying here in verse 1, if you're trusting God, he's hearing your prayers. He's heard your prayers. And even better than that, you have the Holy Spirit, he's directing your prayers. Directing your, even interceding through the Spirit our prayers. Look at verse 2. David goes on, O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord, my goodness is nothing apart 
from you. David goes on in verse 2, but it's not a prayer here in verse 2. David begins to testify here. It's like he's writing to an outside audience or other people in Israel or future saints. He's beginning to testify in verse 2. And specifically, even beyond just testifying, David is doing something that you already do, but God wants you to learn to do it in the Spirit. He is preaching to himself. He's preaching to himself, which will transition into testifying to what he's seen in his life, in his walk with the Lord. You have to have a walk with the Lord to testify of your walk with the Lord. You ever reminded yourself of past prayers? How many of you talk to yourself, by the way? Yeah. Even if you don't know it, you do. If you don't know it, you'll start to recognize it after tonight. Hmm, was that me talking to myself? I just did it right now, you know? You ever been, you ever reminded yourself of past commitments you've made to the Lord? Remind yourself of past commitments. Hey, you, snap out of it. You're talking to yourself. Affirming to yourself what you know is true about the Lord and about yourself. David does that here. It's like he's saying, he says, Oh my soul, it's David talking to his soul. Oh my soul, you have said, Lord, you are my Lord. How many people in David are there? It's like he's saying, listen up, self. Listen up, soul. Let's not forget, speaking to himself, that you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. You've given your life to the Lord. Why are you worrying about this? Why are you stressed about this? Why are you wanting to go a different direction? By the way, I had this thought earlier today while I was personally spending time with the Lord. And I felt led to add this into my notes. It wasn't there originally. But uh, this was, I started to kind of ponder this passage because, I don't know, the passage just came back to me and I just started thinking about what David is doing here and what we can learn from it. We know that God is one. Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. We know that God is one, but we also know he's the three in one. And in the three in one, we know he's the triune God of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We know it's true, even though we can't adequately explain it to anybody. Until we get to heaven, we will never fully understand it. But, even 1 John 5, 7 states emphatically that God the Father, God the Word, and God the Spirit are one, and they bear witness together in heaven. And of course, the Word is just another name for Jesus, or the Son of Man, or the Son of God. But then we also know, and this is where Scripture teaches us Scripture, and doctrines help us understand other doctrines. The doctrine of the Trinity, well established. Even though the Word's not in there, it's established many times in many places. But we also know that the Bible tells us we, all human beings, are created in the what? Image of God. We are a three in one. We are a body, soul, 
and spirit. We're an imperfect three-in-one, but when we were originally created before the fall, there was no sin, but we still are a three-in-one. And we all need salvation, which is the work of regeneration. It's restoring what was lost in the fall, and that being our communion with God. And we need with salvation what? We need the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We need the work of the Holy Spirit for that original work of being created in the image of God to be the blessing and the communion with God that was intended in the first place, that was broken. But nevertheless, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they've perpetually been three in one before, during time, outside of time. But he created us in his image, inside of time, body, soul, and spirit. So we are a lower version of three in one, right? A much lower version. A corrupted version, unless we're saved. But nevertheless, we still were created in the image. That's why we're not allowed to murder one another, because we're created in the image of God. We're not allowed to mistreat one another, because we're created in the image of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 makes this point crystal clear as far as, are we really three in one? Isn't the spirit and the soul the same thing? Let's see what it says. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Hebrews 4.12 also makes this clear. It says discerning the thoughts of the soul and spirit. So we can know for certain that the spirit and the soul are not the identical same thing. God says they're two different things, though they're very interconnected. I'll come back to this verse in, in a second. But as I was thinking through how within the Godhead, there's an internal communication that takes place in the Godhead. We get, we get a few glimpses of it in the Bible. For example... We see the triune God talking internally, let us make man in our image. We get a, only, the, only God would be able to give us that glimpse. We wouldn't know it unless he gave it to us. Anytime Jesus was talking with the Father, you have internal communication within the Godhead. And of course, the Spirit is there as well. But whenever the Godhead is talking inside the internal communication, much of which we're never privy to with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Like when God the Father and the Son say, now is the time to go back and get the bride. We wouldn't be part of that discussion. We would only find out that they had that discussion. But everything inside the Godhead is also always perfect, always holy, always righteous. True? Nothing else. Always perfect. But we've been designed and God's image to have internal communication but ours is not always holy it's not always righteous it's far from perfect some of our internal discussions amen some of our internal we're just talking to each other we're talking ourselves off the ledge talking ourselves some of it's complaining no one else hears it we think God doesn't hear it it's whining it's gossiping to ourself about somebody. It's never perfect. It's never holy in those settings. And in this lifetime, nothing we do will ever be perfect. That's why it always needs perfecting. 
And that's only possible with the help of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can help perfect our internal discussions, our internal communication. But notice David speaking to his own soul. Oh my soul, you have said to the Lord. You are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you, David, speaking to his own soul. And he's preaching to his soul to have and to express the correct spiritual thinking. He's telling his soul, you need to think correctly, righteously. Understand that, put this chart up here, understand that the function of our spirit, say, hey, what, what designates the difference between the spirit and the soul, and, and most everyone knows that the flesh is completely different. That is your skin, your bones, and all that good stuff, or bad stuff as you get older. But um, what is the functional difference between the spirit? Well, the spirit is in the center there of this, just this diagram. We all have a spirit. Everyone's born with a spirit. Everyone's born with a soul. Everyone's born with a body. The spirit is to receive from God. It's the spirit that the Holy Spirit can speak to when it says in John chapter 1, God's given light to every man. It's the spirit that speaks to the spirit of man and says, you need a savior. But the spirit can say, I don't want a savior. Or the spirit can say, please receive me. So it's the spirit that can receive from God and to connect to God and with God for that initial point of salvation and everything after that initial point of salvation. The function of our soul is to express to God. The soul worships God, although, again, they're interconnected. So it's not that the Spirit's not involved in that at all. But the soul is to express to God. It's the soul is to focus our attention on God. It's the mind the renewing of our mind in Romans chapter 12, right? That's your soul needs to be cleansed. Not for some, once you're saved, you're saved, but the soul is constantly needing a renewing, a refreshing, and that's that sanctification work that Jesus is always doing. Now David, his spirit's been touched by the Lord already. He already knows God. He's already been connected to God by putting his faith and trust in God. That's back in verse 1. He put his trust in God. But he's reminding his soul of what he's rightly prayed in the past. And he's reminding his soul, hey, soul of David, you are totally dependent on God. You need to know that. If no one else is there to preach to you, you are going to have to preach to yourself, but you're preaching from the source of God's truth. Amen? not making it up. You're passing it along with what the Lord has shown. As Jesus said, now David is reminding, my goodness is nothing apart from you. He's telling his own self, I have nothing apart from God. Jesus said the same thing, didn't he, in John 15, 5. I've quoted this verse probably a thousand times now, but for without me you can do nothing. We know our righteousness is what? Filthy rags. And not only can we do nothing without the Lord, we are nothing without the Lord. The Bible says if a man thinks he is something when he is not, 
It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Not only can do it, we can't do anything, but we are nothing. We have no, he's reminding himself, I have no goodness apart from the righteousness of God. None. There's nothing good in David. That's how he could fall like he did. There's still a flesh there. And you and I have nothing good apart from the righteousness of Christ. We are covered by his garments. When God looks at us, he does, you don't want him to see your garments. He sees the garments of Christ. We're covered by his garments. It was true for David and the Old Testament saints that were looking forward to the Messiah. It's true for us as we're looking back to the Messiah, but all of us are really looking up to the Messiah. So David is reminding his soul, and it's so important for us as believers, us as disciples, to learn how to remind our soul. I don't care how old you are in this room, you can learn to remind your soul with the help of the Holy Spirit by abiding in Christ. What are we reminding our soul? We're reminding our soul of truth, of the love of God, of God's faithfulness. Because Satan's always trying to tell you, God is going to fail you. He was convinced, if I do this to Job, and this to Job, and this to Job, he will curse you and die. And God's like, no, he's put his trust in me. He will preach to himself that which he knows is true. Back to that verse in Thessalonians. Here it is again. I know I put it up already, but as I was looking at this verse again, I noticed that not only we have David's reflection on his internal conversation, but remember back in his prayer in verse 1, he said, preserve me. And what's also in this verse? That you would be preserved. There's only one author of the scripture, folks. He's the same author as the New Testament as he is the Old Testament. So, along comes Paul writing this, and he's saying the same thing. Preserve us until you get back. David's saying, preserve me through this lifetime. We'll have to preach to ourselves while we're being preserved, but all of what David then will go on to testify in these next verses that we'll run through, everything else that we're going to look at the next nine verses here, and reminds himself, all of that is coming from the Lord. The Lord's giving him that, and he's giving it back out, either as testifying, what he's observing, but it's all a testifying of what the Lord's showing him, or what the Lord has already shown him, what the Lord is doing for him in his life. Moving on to verse 3, as for the saints who are on the earth, they're the excellent ones in whom it's all my delight. Now, from David's perspective, let's put ourselves in David's shoes when he wrote this. Go back in time and say, all right, I'm, I'm now in David's shoes or his sandals when he wrote this. From David's perspective, at that time when he wrote it, what he's testifying is the Lord had given him a great love for the saints of God. No matter whether they were Jewish or Gentile, the Lord had given him a great love for the saints of God. Remember how David loved Jonathan? Those two would literally die for one another. Jonathan was so full of love for David, he's like, I know that I should inherit the crown, but I gladly give that 
over to you, which is a good picture of what John the Baptist would later do for Jesus. Step out of the way and let Jesus take center stage. But David had a great love for not just Jonathan, but all the saints of God. Speaking for myself, before I was saved, I did not want to hang out with Christians. They seemed boring to me. They seemed annoying to me. They seemed like a wet blanket to me. Mm -mm. That was not who I was hoping to have a good time with, was Christians. But salvation, and then the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, imparts a love for the family of God that you could not manufacture, you can only receive. Cannot manufacture it. Now you can quench it, quench the Spirit, but you can't manufacture a love for the family of God. I don't know about you guys, but... I mean, I meet believers that in some cases I've only met once in my entire lifetime and I had an instant gravity pull to them. I'm like, I could hang out with you for days. And the Lord's like, you're only getting an hour with this person. Never see them again. Could be on the West Coast, could be in another city, could be someone that passed through and even spoke here. Only the Spirit can get it. David's testifying to that. He goes, the excellent ones and all my delight. He goes, I delight in the people of God. I was glad when they said, let us go into the house of the Lord. Not like I was bummed out like the teenagers like, oh, it's the last place I want to be. Because most cases, those teenagers haven't been transformed yet. They don't have a love for the body. I mean, you need to be praying for them. In fact, one of the proofs that we've actually come into true salvation, that we really are saved, because the proof is not that you said a sinner's prayer. The proof is in the fruit. Jesus said you'll know them by their what? Fruit. One of the proofs that we've been saved is that we have a true love for the brothers and sisters in Christ. The ones we've met, the ones we've never met. That we really do love fellowship. Read the entire book of 1 John. It says it however many ways you can say it. The whole book. It's not the only, but it's, a, it's one of the central themes of the book of 1 John is that you're going to have a love for the body of Christ. If you, if you don't love your brother whom you have seen, how can you love God whom you have not seen? It's right there in the text. Now from the messianic perspective, now that, that's if we put ourselves in David's shoes, which would be the same as putting ourselves in Paul's shoes or any other saint. All believers are given by the Spirit a love for the body. Now you have to cultivate that love. I have a love for my wife, but I still cultivate it that it would be get that it would become deeper and richer. And you have to cultivate a love for people that, you know, when talking to people that say, Well, I don't really connect with them automatically. Well, welcome to life. <laughs> you don't connect with a lot of people automatically. You, you have a love for them, but you've got to break down walls and cultural walls. That's all called hard work and just dying to self. But you actually love enough to do that. That's what that, the Spirit gives you enough to say, that's important. I need to die to myself. Well, I don't really connect. And they, they talk this way and I talk this way. Great, you're going to have to learn to bend. That's all part of it. But now we look at this from the messianic perspective. What I mean by, now let's put Jesus in verse 3. Because this is a messianic psalm. And a lot of the verses are directly reflecting Jesus walking through this world. 
Now you put Jesus there. Would you say this is true of Christ? The saints, oh, they were on the earth. They are the excellent ones in whom is my delight. Yes, he, Jesus loves his bride. He loves, his bride is made up a lot of the individual souls that are stitched together to be the bride. But collectively they are the saints, plural, but they are the church, singular. All of us are the church, singular, but we are the saints, plural. So Jesus has a great love for his church. He's going to come back and lavish that love on the saints of the earth and also the saints that have already gone before and will lead all the other saints that have ever died into that eternal presence. Look at verse 4. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings and blood offerings I will not offer, nor will I take up their names on my lips. David is preaching here, again testifying, writing a letter to anyone that wants to read it, if you will. David is preaching here to those that pursue the false gods and the broad road to destruction. Many there be, as Jesus said, that go that way. He's, uh, he's preaching to those that pursue the false gods of this world and thereby, not only the false god, the evil practices, even the drinking of blood and all the other things that have come with the occultic religions of the world, and they follow all the things that would, you know, there's so many sins that multiply anytime there's a rejection of God. That's why we have more and more perversity. Every time God is rejected, the hard, the heart the hearts get hardened and more hardened and more hardened and more blinded and you see the sins multiply. But he's saying the salt, uh, not only in this lifetime the sins will be multiplied, but eventually their sorrows will be multiplied and think about how long eternity in hell is. Multiplied infinitely. Makes no sense to go the broad road and the false gods and the false everything in this world. And David's saying, um, that road ends in sorrow. The verse before is delight. Verses 5 and 6. Um, o Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. David clearly speaking of his position here within the family of God. If you've been saved, you have a position. You have a seat at the Father's table. Reserved for you, your name, written in the Lamb's Book of Life, but also reserved forever in heaven. And David's speaking of his, his position within the family of God. As you all know by now, none of us are naturally born into the family of God. We have to be born again or adopted into the family of God. No one is just, hey, our brand new baby, we christen them, and they're good. No. Their spirit and soul are going to have to decide to say yes to the bidding of God for them to come to salvation. But once that takes place, that new birth that Jesus spoke of in John chapter 3, speaking to Nicodemus, then we're adopted by grace through faith and repentance. The grace comes first. We respond with faith and repentance. And then this word inheritance, we see it all through. Now, it's pervasive in the Old Testament, understanding how inheritance worked. But we see it all through the New Testament as well, spelled out more in a spiritual way. 
And of course, David's speaking spiritually here as well. And here's three verses that are in the New Testament. That, and, I, and there's many in the New Testament speak of inheritance. But here's just three. Jesus said this, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. No, the Antichrist is not going to inherit the earth. The United Nations is not going to inherit the earth. Washington politicians are not, only if they're saved. You can be a saved politician. We need more of them. I get that. But, but only, now the meek is synonymous here with those that have humbled themselves and received salvation. They are the humble. They've bowed at the feet of the Lord and received. So the meek will inherit the earth. Ephesians 1.11. In him we also have obtained inheritance. In who? In Christ. Christ is the one who has the right to the inheritance and he gives us the same inheritance because we have received salvation through faith. In Ephesians 5.5. 5. Now this refers back up to verse 4 as well as verses 5 and 6, if you will. Verse 4, remember, multiplied sorrows of those that pursue false gods because Paul says here, for this you know that no fornicator or unclean person, nor covetous man, nor idolater, someone going after a false god, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So only those that have been born anew have received the inheritance. Anyone that is not is back up in verse 4, multiplied sorrows for those that go after false gods. So we actually see both of the, both these passages, verses 4 and then here in verses 5 and 6. Now the word lines, it says the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. The word lines is an Old Testament metaphor for blessings. The blessings have come upon me. You don't want judgment to fall on you, but you'll be just fine with the lines or the blessings of God falling upon you. Amen? You don't mind being showered with blessings, but you don't want to be showered with hellfire and brimstone, right? The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Not Sodom and Gomorrah, where what fell on Sodom and Gomorrah was not pleasant. It was unpleasant. It was destructive. And he says, you, yes, I have a good inheritance Understand, brother and sister, the Lord himself is the present portion of our inheritance. The part we can't see, we don't receive until we pass from this life. But right now, we've been given the seal of the Holy Spirit as the present indwelling inheritance that we're already... And it's a, it's a big deal that we've already received that because now we have capacity for peace and joy. In him is our blessing. In Him is our satisfaction. In Him is our peace. He is the portion for our soul that money cannot buy, that drugs and alcohol cannot supply, that pornography and pleasures and all the things that people say, well, if I had that stuff, then I could have some sort of satisfaction. But everybody that pursues those things never finds it, right? In that sense, the Rolling Stones song was right. You can't get no satisfaction. That's true. Verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. Night seasons can be long. Night seasons can be short. Night seasons can be a literal night, 
Or it feels like, man, this entire year has been a night. A long night. But the best way to understand this is where he says, I will bless the Lord. The beginning part of this verse, I will bless the Lord. Uh, what it means to say is, you could read it this way, and you might want to write this in your Bible. I will bow or kneel before the Lord. That's what it really means. It says, I will bless. I'm like, how do we? Because you ever wonder, how am I going to bless God? What do I have that could possibly bless? You don't have anything, but you can bow or kneel. That's why it says at the end of the age, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Now, when you do it, surrender, it'll be worship. And you, at the end, it's too late. It is pleading, but at that point, it's too late. But right now, uh, David's saying, for him, this is his testimony. This is what he's testifying. As for him, kind of like Josh says, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. David's saying, as for me and my soul and my spirit and my body, all three parts, we will, now, we will kneel and bow before the Lord. That's why we do it every Sunday, just get in that posture and say, Lord, we, are, we can't really bless God, but he loves when we actually kneel before him. He's worthy of our surrender. He's worthy of our worship. And then he says, uh, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. Isn't it great to know that one of his names is Wonderful Counselor? Wonderful counselor. People spend a lot of money to lay on couches and talk to people that don't know God and try and get counsel from people that they're talking to false gods or they're just speaking from their own resources. But we have the wonderful counselor and all we have to do is kneel before him. That's how we bless. Lord, we bow. It's really, and I don't mean to be the posture of our knees, although we, I, I do think it's good to get on our knees, but many people, once you're at a certain age, you're not going to be able to get on your knees ever again. God's okay with that. It's, it's the humbling of the heart. Humbling of the heart. And that counsel that comes from his word is then hidden in our hearts. The, the counsel, thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Then that counsel is hidden in the heart because it's received where? By that center area of the spirit. The spirit can receive from the spirit. Then it hides it there. And here again, he says, my heart also instructs me in the night seasons. And that can be, David had a lot of night seasons. So if you feel like, man, I've had a lot of night seasons, you're in good company. David had a lot of night seasons. That's why the Psalms were written. That's why we're going through the Psalms, remember? The theme of the Psalm is living for God in the real world. And the real world has night seasons, as well as good seasons, and bright seasons, and all those things. But, um, but here again, we see the Spirit is instructing the soul, because he said, I, my heart instructs me. David's having another internal conversation here. My heart instructs me. The Spirit instructing the soul, or that swirling mind, calming the mind with truth, with hope, with peace, with the meditation of God's Word. Our flesh, if you do not interject the Spirit of God speaking to your spirit, and then your spirit communicating the truth that your soul needs to hear, your flesh will then win the day and you will be tossing and turning and tossing and turning and spinning. You can spin yourself right into a grave. 
but the heart instructed by God settles the mind. It takes those thoughts captive, the scriptures tell us. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, you guys know this. Finally, brethren or sisters as well, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. I so wish smartphones had never been invented. I, I, I was in, you guys know, I was in big tech for years, and I, I remember the Palm Pilot. I was like, it's all downhill from here. I knew what was, then came the Blackberry. Then came email just on your laptop. Then came 24-7, and then shh. Paul's like, You're, you guys are going to need this verse big time. You're going to need this verse in 2022. They needed it then. Verse 8, got to bring it to a close here. Let's, uh, look, I have set the Lord always before me. Let me read verses 8 through 11 because these last four verses are expressly messianic, even though we see the messianic portions in others as well. But let's read them together, uh, as one. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my, flesh, my, uh, my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In verse 8 here, we see, now we can see the life, and this last section is messianic without question. In other words, it points forward to Jesus. Uh, but we also see the life of David here in verse 8. And it's counsel to all of us. When you think about verse 8, um, I have set the Lord always before me. Uh, we're all to seek first the kingdom of God. We're all to put the Lord first. We're all, as Hebrews tells us, to be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So even though it's pointing to the Messiah, David is also speaking for David here too. And, and we can see why, because he's going to be part of everything that Jesus is going to do with the empty tomb. But uh, that assurance, he says, I put the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Brother and sister, you can know that if you're putting the Lord first, nothing can move you in this world. I mean, you can get so bold that you can become not the Peter on the night of the Passover, who denied Jesus three times, but the Peter at the end of his life says, hey, 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 time out. Can you please, bury me? Can you please crucify me upside down? That's a different Peter. Fearless. That changes everything. You could not move him by the end of his life, but you could the night of the Passover. And as we have that assurance that as we put the Lord first and we seek him first and we're looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, that this world can neither rule us or ruin us. That this world can't rule us or ruin us. And we also see, of course, the Messiah. We know that Jesus was fully devoted to the will of the Father. He even said, even if this cup could pass from me, of course he knew the Father said, no, you need... I need you to drink it. And he did. 
Nothing moved Jesus. Not even a centimeter moved Jesus. You and I, we're going to get wobbled a few times, for sure. But nothing moved Jesus even a centimeter. But now, here's the good news, we're in him. So because he's immovable, we can become part of his immovable nature. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, you can write that down. That's the verse. I didn't have a chance to put it up. Verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices and my flesh also will rest in hope. Now when we know, when we know deep down with a fortified faith that the Lord will never leave us and he'll never forsake us, and the more you believe that, and it's it's one thing to know it up here, but it's a different thing to know it here. Deep in the spirit, which preaches back to the soul, uh, that we have that assurance that he's never going to leave us and forsake us, that he is our portion, he is our protection, well, what that does is it gives us hope. Not, not, I, not the hope, I hope I win the lottery. That's, that's a wish. This hope is, I know, this, is a, this hope is a joyful expectation. I've told you guys many times, that's, that's the definition in the New Testament of the word hope. A joyful expectation. You know we're going to be sitting at the marriage supper of the Lamb. You just don't know when, right? You know we're going to be sitting at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's, a, it's as good as done. We just don't know when that's going to happen. So we have that joyful expectation, but we, uh, we can have that joy that Jesus promised in John chapter 15, I've come that your joy might be full. Now the second part uh, is, is my flesh will rest in hope. Now we know ultimately that the body of Jesus would not decay, and ultimately our bodies, though they will decay, will be turned back into brand new bodies. So that flesh, this old tent is getting a new tent. Amen? But even in this lifetime, there's application too because our flesh, the more you and I are controlled by the Spirit and we're able to speak truth to our own soul, you actually will have less health issues in the flesh. When your spirit is healthy, it helps all of it. I'm not saying that you will be cured from everything. That's up to the Lord. But it certainly, when your mind and soul is calm, the body gets great benefit from that. And you rest. You rest. You literally can lean back on the hope of Jesus as opposed to, I've got to figure everything out. I've got to solve every problem on this planet. That's your little planet, or my little planet. Verses 8 through 11, coming to a close here. I don't have time to reread them again. But, um, but they're the clearest and most straightforward expressions of the Psalms, of the coming Messiah. Um, by no means is that the only one in the Psalms. Matter of fact, there are 20, uh, there's your eye chart, there's 20 messianic Psalms in the book of Psalms. So across the 150 chapters, there are 20 of them. This is the third one. We actually covered um, in chapter 2 the first one. So these are the 20 messianic references specifically that Jesus fulfilled or will fulfill in himself. Peter in uh, Acts chapter 2, so 50 days after the resurrection comes what? Pentecost. And 50 days after the resurrection, Peter stands up, no more denying Jesus. He preaches with great power. 3,000 people get saved that day. And Peter requotes verses 8 through 11 in his message. When he stands up to preach, he quotes verses 8 through 11 
the verses we just uh, finished with there. Letting, what was Peter letting them know? He was letting them know that everything David said would happen, happened with Jesus, that God lifted up his son. And when he says, pleasures at your right hand forevermore, when Jesus ascended to heaven, where did he sit down? At the right hand of the Father. And he has been with the Father, and nothing blesses Jesus more than being at the right hand of his Father from now forevermore. And he will bring us to that same throne room eventually. But, but here's the thing. If the Father, because a lot of this is messianic, but David learned to live by the help of God, who was his help and his portion. But if the Father was the portion for Jesus in his 33-year ministry, and he was, and the Father ensured Jesus' victory over sin and death, and ensured that Jesus would have that eternal place at the right hand, well, then Jesus will be the same faithfulness to us. <laughs> He's our mediator between God. He will be that same faithfulness to us. And we have become his saints, who he delights in, back there in verse what, uh, 3, by adoption. And he's the one, Jesus is the one, that will teach us, just as David had to learn, to instruct our own souls to be filled with the joy of the Lord as we obey and put the Lord first. Amen? That is what just a fraction of being said in this 16th chapter. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again for this time in your word. Lord, uh, we pray that you would teach us. We already talked to ourselves. But Lord, we would begin encouraging our soul with the encouragement that comes from the wonderful counselor. For all your ways are life and peace and truth. And all of our own ways and the ways of this world are death and stress and anxiousness and all the things that, Lord, defeat courage. Even, Lord, we know that the word encourage is to give courage. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us your courage, your peace, your hope, your joy as we preach to ourselves, not from ourselves, but from your word, by the help of your spirit, and we meditate on these things day and night, in the night seasons, in the easier seasons, Lord, that we would be continually, our roots growing deeper in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.